great music. They say, wow, what a great building. They say, wow, what a great choir. But that's not the proper response to worship. The proper response to worship is, wow, what a great God. Amen. Mm. I'm going to tell you what. I, I was driving in the rain today. I said, you know what? I don't care if nobody shows up today. I'm going to have church. Amen. Then Pastor Robert called me. I was in the truck. We just started praying. Talking about scripture. I didn't even have to wait to get here to get church going on. See, church is not what happens in the building. It's what happens in the heart. When God's people come together. Man, it's been a blessed week. You know what? Can I just say that? Have you been blessed? You're still here, ain't you? My little girl, she got a bunch of Legos for her birthday. I said, Bella, you're blessed. She said, Daddy, I'd be blessed if I only got one Lego. And then she said, if I didn't get any Legos, I'd still have God. Praise the Lord, I might not do a lot right, but at least her mama's teaching her something. So this past week, Bella celebrated her sixth birthday, and so to celebrate, we went to see the, uh, the new movie Cinderella at Starlight Theater. How many of you have been to Starlight since the renovations? They have motorized recliners. <laughs> I'm going to tell you what, I ain't going to no other movie theater ever again in my life. You don't even have to push back, you just push a button. It's amazing. And so, uh, Bella wanted to go see Cinderella. And to be honest with you, I wasn't really excited about seeing Cinderella. I was excited about spending time with my little girl. Because um, I wasn't, you know, too excited about a princess movie, especially from Disney. But much to my surprise, this wasn't your normal cartoon children's movie. Uh, and what first grabbed me in the storyline was not the... Uh, the romance of, you know, the story, but it was that this perfectly happy character was reduced to a life of suffering. All right, so what first grabbed me in the story was the pain that this movie talks about, real, real pain that people experience. My, my wife lost her mother when she was seven years old in a car accident, and I saw that, that in the movie her name is Ella, before Cinderella, Ella lost her mother very early on. And I was like, you know what? That's real pain. And so this suffering in her produced a deeper relationship with her father in the movie. But after a number of years, her father remarried to a deceptive mother-in-law, stepmother, uh, excuse me, as I should say, a stepmother. And after a number of years, her father remarried, oh, sorry, I've already said that. 
And, and to make matters worse, <laughs> she lived with two horrible stepsisters. Okay? So she's lost her mom. Her, her, her father remarried. And then she's got horrible stepsisters. And then her father goes on a journey. And her father becomes sick on this journey and dies. So now she has no one left. Except for her stepmother and the stepsisters. And now Cinder, uh, Ella is reduced just to the hired help. Basically the, the, the life of a slave. And, and because the stepmother no longer has any income from the father, she has to release all the other help. And, and Ella has to do everything around the house. Has to... Uh, uh, do the dishes, work the chores, feed the chickens, fix breakfast, lunch, dinner, on and on. What moms normally do. So mothers know what I'm talking about. But her stepmother asked her to move into the attic. I mean, this was her house, and she has to move to the attic. And the attic is so cold that she ends up sleeping by the fireplace in the kitchen in front of the ashes and the cinders. And so she wakes up in the morning with, with ashes all over her face and cinders all over her gown and so they call her Cinderella. I never knew that before. I've never paid attention in the Disney movies. So it was Cinderella. Now you probably know the rest of the story. She meets a young man in the woods. And the, the man doesn't know the identity of this young lady. But he kind of starts falling in love with her. And turns out this young man is son of the king. He is the prince. And he sends out invitations to a ball for the whole kingdom to come. Because he wants to find this, this girl he met in the country and then she appears in the most spectacular fashion and you know they dance and yada 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 all the lovey-dovey stuff so uh, you know during this whole time there are conversations where the, the the royal family doesn't want the king's son to marry a commoner he doesn't want the future king to be married to a peasant because that would bring shame upon the kingdom but fast forward to where uh, uh, she loses her slipper and then he searches the whole, the whole kingdom, every single woman, and finally discovers that the love of his life is a slave. She is a servant. And so there's this wonderful scene, and you already know this, the story, so you need, to, you need to watch it for yourself, but there's this wonderful scene where she presents herself to the now king in, in rags and ashes, and says, will you take me as I am? And the king looks at her and looks beyond the outward appearances of what the world says and finds for himself a bride who has been refined through suffering. A bride whose character has been developed through pain. And the trials of the story are what makes the marriage beautiful. If it were not for the suffering and the trial of the princess, it would not be a beautiful story. Now folks, let me tell you something. This is what Apostle Paul has been telling us in Romans chapter 8. That the essence of this chapter is this. God is in control. He is choosing for himself a bride. And the sufferings of this life are not taking power away from the Christian life. They are putting power into it. Oh, somebody should have shouted glory right now. I haven't even still got my keys on me. That's what's weighing me down right now. I knew something was missing. You see, 
You would not be who you are if it were not for the trials in your life producing the image of Christ if in you. If it were not for the trials, then you would simply be the ugly stepsister. And Jesus is refining a radiant bride that will be presented to him in glory and splendor. My, my friends, when we see the love of Jesus that looks through the rags and ashes of our sinful identity, we see that his love has searched us out, traversed every valley and mountain in order to find that radiant bride that will last forever. I'm telling you, Jesus is so good, he can even use Cinderella to make a point. It is through the suffering of the bride that we see the character of the groom in selecting his bride. You see, this chapter in Romans 8 is driving home the point as Hebrews 12, 2 says that God is the author and finisher of our faith. He's in control. The devil's not in control. I wish somebody would know that point today because the way some Christians look, I wonder if they think, of God ever going to make anything of it? Oh, we just need to pray for our country. Indeed we do. If the church would rise up, maybe something would happen in the country. Amen? Let me tell you, Obama and whoever's in the White House will not enact social reform like the power of the gospel will when the church stands up. God's doing something. He's in control. We looked at the book of Job on Easter. And you know what the beginning of that tells us? That the devil can't do anything unless the Lord allows him to. Early on in Romans chapter 8, a few Wednesday nights ago, we looked at the fact that the creation was subjected to frustration by the will of the Creator. That all the suffering that's here is producing a point because it's pointing people to Jesus. Here's what I read yesterday. The fastest growing church movements in the world are in the poorest countries in the world. God is using poverty for His glory. The slowest growing church movements are in the richest countries in the world. It's not pointless suffering. It's bringing people to Jesus. Amen. Let's go ahead and read Romans chapter 8. If you're not already there, go ahead and turn in your Bibles to Romans chapter 8. Dane, you excited today? I'm glad. Well, we just want to check, see where we're at. I'm going to read 28, 29, and 30, but today we're going to focus on verse 29. And we know that all things work together for good to those who love God. To those who are called according to his purpose. For those he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Moreover, those he predestined, he also called. And those he called, he also justified. And those he justified, he also glorified. I don't think he can get much better than that today. You know what that tells me? God's in control. I've titled this sermon today, When God Writes a Love Story. you got the notes right there on the front page of your bulletin. I want you to take notes with us today. Number one is this, that when God writes a story, He knows the characters. 
He knows the characters. You see, as we said last week, God already sees the end of creation. God already sees the end of the story. And in that end, there is a redeemed people who will worship Him forever and ever and ever. And God already sees that. Matter of fact, the Scripture already says that we are in every heavenly place with Jesus Christ. We are seated in the heavenlies with Him. My friend, if a name is written in the Lamb's book of life, it's there. All right? I'm glad God writes with blood and not an eraser. Amen? The Lamb's book of life are the ones who have been purchased by the Lamb. He's not an Indian giver. He don't give salvation and take it back. When God saves, God keeps. Amen? And when we see that that the Scripture says those who uh, persevere to the end will be saved, you know why? Because the only ones that will be saved are those who will persevere. There are no other. When God works a miraculous salvation in the life of a believer, it will persevere to the end. And do not be dismayed when we see those who come into the, 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 the fold, but then they go out of the fold. Let me tell you what, that's not persevering to the end. And we should let God grip our heart, not just to say, well, well, they're baptized, preacher. You know what I'm saying? I don't give a rip how many times they've been dunked. Somebody go tell them about Jesus Christ. I know a lot of churches baptize people seven, eight, nine, ten times. <laughs> it don't matter, my friend. The water don't matter. what matters is the heart has the heart been transformed see God knows who belongs in that bride he was working all things toward the salvation of those people and not only does God have the story but the Bible says that he has other books as well like I mentioned the Lamb's book of life Romans 13 8 says the Lamb has been slain before the foundation of the world guess what the book was written before we ever got here Oh, once you see that, you're going to say, my, my, my. You see what I'm saying? God knew you before you were ever born. (laughs) And he still created you. That's the shocking thing. (laughs) You know, if everyone knew everything about you, nobody would be friends with you. I don't tell everything. You know, we used to have something called journal where you'd write your private thoughts and hide it. And now it's called Facebook and everybody sees it. I'm like, do you people understand what you're talking about? <laughs> oh, man. Me and George were talking this morning. Oh, he's crazy, but I love him. So, so this foreknowledge means that Jesus knows his bride. <laughs> And he is working all things to that end as he is choosing a bride for himself. Now some of you may feel a little helpless that maybe this makes you feel like, you know what, I I guess I'm not totally in control of my own little bubble. I'm I'm not totally in control of my own life circumstances. And maybe that makes you feel... Uh, helpless, but that's how you should feel because it lets us realize that God is in control. And let me tell you, my friends, if you know the desires of your heart, you would want God to be in control and not you. It should make us realize that He is calling by His mercy instead of our own efforts to become the bride. 
When we read the stories of the Old Testament, we always find that God is the one who decrees and delivers. This is a pattern over and over again. In the Old Testament, God decrees, then He delivers. He does not say, oh, oh, I hope, I hope you come out. He told Moses, I'm going to bring you out. And this is salvation theology. I'm going to save a people. I'm going to call a people. The most pinnacle event in the Old Testament is the Exodus. And, and we find this, the theology of salvation, that God calls people out of darkness into their light. And let me say this, the story is not about the faith of Moses. If you're a Sunday school teacher and you get to these Old Testament stories, it's not about how good Moses was. Because be honest, Moses wasn't even that good. He doubted the whole time. God, I can't do this. God, these people complain. God, we can't go do this. They're just bothering. He, he never had perfect faith. He was a foreshadow of Jesus who had perfect faith. Even the story's not about Israel because no sooner had God gotten them out of Egypt than they were fashioning idols out of gold built by human hands worshiping their own self-glory. It's not about Israel, it's about God. The story of the Bible from beginning to end is the story of a sovereign God and not the story of man's ability to find God. And when we try to make the Bible anything other than what it is, we detract from the glory of God and build for ourselves the golden idol of man's ability. Foreknowledge implies this. God knows the people He's going to save. He knows everything about you, including the hairs on your head. And for some of us, it doesn't take them as long to count. You'll get that by slow freight tomorrow. He knew you before you were born. He knew that you would cheat in high school history class. He knew that you would commit adultery and idolatry and we'd be tossed about with every attempt at self-salvation through sin and good works. But the amazing thing is that he called you to himself anyway. That's why we sing Mighty God. Not because he found you worthy. He found you unworthy. A lot of times, you know... You go to our funeral and you hear someone say, well, God needed him more than we do. Let me tell you, first of all, God doesn't need anything. All right? <laughs> Secondly of all, God doesn't bring home the best. God brings home the worst. Because everyone that thinks they're the best, they're not going home. You see what I'm saying? We think we deserve to be in glory. We've missed the gospel. We've missed the goodness and the mercy of God. He calls the worst to himself in ashes and rags. Second point is this. When God writes a story, he knows the narrative. He doesn't just know the characters. He knows the narrative. He knows the whole sequence of events. Ephesians 1.5 uses the same scripture that Romans 8.29 uses that God predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself according to the kind intention of his will. Not, not, not my will, according to the kind intention of his will. God, God determines. This word predestined comes from two Greek words, pro, which is before, and orizo, which is horizon, that he established the boundaries of our salvation beforehand. It means that just as he ordained the limits of the ocean, he also ordained the tide of your sin so that that would not take you too far to self-destruction, but when you reached the farthest point where you could go, he began drawing you back. You reached the boundary, and he brought you back. 
So scripture tells us not only does he know you, but he knows your choices. And he knows you would choose every manner of sin and self-salvation until he would intervene. The story of Israel is the story of self-salvation. They tried everything they could to save themselves. Even God, gave, God said, listen, listen. You want to be good enough? Okay, here's the law. See if you can keep it. Guess what? They never did. <laughs> they couldn't even keep 10 and then it expanded to 600. And there's still people who think, I can follow all of it to be right with God. We miss the gospel. So, this is the beauty of the gospel that was hardened for the hearts of the Jews. The Jews spent their whole life, their whole existence, trying to understand and to seek God. And the inclusion of the Gentiles into the work of God's grace was a stumbling block to the Jews because they said, we've spent our whole life trying to earn it and they don't deserve it. That's exactly the point. You don't deserve it. I don't deserve it. Oh man, I got to preach to myself right now. I don't deserve it. Amen, preacher. I don't deserve it. The greatest thing we can realize is that we are a small speck in the desert of history. That God never needed us, but he called us. That's the difference. He called us. You see, let me tell you something about God's grace and God's design. God, God found you. You didn't find God. And if you don't agree with me, I want you to think about the song that we have sung a thousand times in church, Amazing Grace. Let's, let me just recant this. Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound. That saved a pretty good person. No, it says saved a wretch like me. Amen? I once was lost, but now I'm found. That means somebody found me. This is the most famous hymn in the hymn book. I think we could agree. Somebody found me. Was blind, but now I see. You know who wrote that song? A slave trader named John Newton. He worked aboard ships who bought and sold human beings like property. And he made a living by shackling God's created people and selling them into a lifehood of servitude. That's how he made a lot of money. He made a lot of money. Was he looking for God? No. Until his ship crashed in 1748 and began to sink and the, the hull of the ship filled with water and he thought he was going to die. So he cried out to God for mercy and he said in that moment God saved him. And he spent the rest of his life devoted to the doctrines of the gospel and the abolition of slavery. You see, in this story, the real slave was himself. He was slave to the sin of his own will, to the cravings of flesh, power, pride, and a life without God. But God was the deliverer in his life and in yours. And once we realize that without God's intervention, we would never have come to God, we see that he's the author and finisher of our faith. A friend came to visit our church services last week, and a few days later he bought some flowers for his wife. And I said, what's the occasion for the flowers? He said, well, no reason. I said, that's what happens when you start listening to the gospel of grace. You're liberated to love with no condition because that's how God has loved you. You see, you're never going to love anybody unconditionally until you see how God has loved you unconditionally. And as long as we think we deserve something from God, we're going to wait till people to deserve something from us. Well, I'm not going to their event because they didn't invite me to theirs. Now, that's a great Christian response. Yeah. 
They didn't send me a birthday card, and I ain't going to send them a birthday card. Perfectly Christ-like. <laughs> no, it's not. When you see that you didn't deserve anything, but Jesus gave you everything. Man, it don't matter what somebody deserves. I'm going to love people anyway, because that's what Christ does. The last point is this. When God writes a story, he knows the hero. See, God knows the characters, God knows the narrative, God knows the hero, and he planned it to reveal the hero. Acts 2.23 says that Jesus was handed over to the, the Romans and the Jews by God's deliberate plan and foreknowledge. This is the same word used as the foreknowledge from us. Just as God delivered Jesus to crucifixion in foreknowledge, he also delivered you to salvation in foreknowledge because that's what he declared before the world was created. God entered the story to become the one who would take the effects of our transgression upon himself. God didn't just write the story. He entered the story. He's the hero of the story. It's all about him. The whole story is revealing the nature of God as seen through the life and death of his son. You see, if you and I were only moderate sinners, then Jesus would be a moderate savior. Mm. But because we're great sinners, he is a great savior. <laughs> mm. And that's the great neglect of modern preaching. When preaching makes a, dig, uh, a big deal about man's ability, then it makes little about God's ability. When scripture becomes about what we can do, then it's not about what God has done. And that's law. You see what most of us want to hear? We want to hear, you know, sermons about, hey, hey, tell me five ways to become a better dad. Tell me five ways to be a better spouse. Tell me four PowerPoints to unlock God's provision in my life. This is, this is what is produced these days. How can I have the blessing of Jabez? You already got the blessing. Matter of fact, Jabez didn't have Jesus. Why are you worried about Jabez for? <laughs> I don't want to be Jabez. I want to be a citizen of the kingdom. You can't enlarge God's territory. He's already given you the ends of the earth. And we ain't going there. Most Christians pray to decrease their territory. Come on. That's the truth. You know why? You know why? We're so... Self-centric in America, we think the gospel's about me and you. As long as I have my life and what I want, man, I'm blessed. Let me tell you what. Once you see it's about the hero and it's not about you, you're going to do what the hero's done told you to do. Amen? See, a lot of us want to be a better dad by being better, but the only hope for our family is to let Jesus be the hero in our home. And once Jesus is the hero in us, then our kids might see him. The whole story is for Jesus, about Jesus, by Jesus. And folks, when you get this, it makes everything click. When you see, man, today's not about me. Today's not about me. It's about Christ. Everything starts to click. You know what? If people hurt your feelings, guess what? It ain't about you. 
He done said, Paul said in the book of Acts, you're going to suffer many tribulations for the gospel. C.S. Lewis said that we're far too easily pleased by the things of this world. And that reveals how little we understand about the great glory of God. And see, we don't even know how satisfying God is until He rips from us that which we thought was most glorious to us and we see that everything else is gone and the glory of God remains. We don't see the glory of God unless we go through the, the, the trial of suffering. Because otherwise we think it's about me. But God has to beat down that self-will. God has to strip you away until only Christ remains. We need to have an identity crisis. We need to say, listen, the only thing, I'm so beaten up, the only thing that's left is Jesus. This is a story of suffering. And God shows himself and refines his saints through tribulation because the glory of the Son was revealed to us through suffering. God revealed his story so that we could see his glory. Without the narrative of scripture and history, we would not know how glorious God is. And I want to finish with Romans 8.30. It's either in your scripture or the bottom of your notes. And it says this. This is kind of a conclusion to the thought process of uh, suffering and, and, and uh, um, election. And what we've been talking about for the past three weeks. It says, those he predestined, he also called. And those he called, he justified. It means made right with God. And those he justified, he glorified. It means he secured their inheritance forever. That your inheritance is secured through the blood of Jesus Christ. Nothing else. Nothing else. If you ask the average Christian today, if God's going to let you into heaven, why would he? They'll say, well, I've done a pretty good job. <laughs> That's the wrong answer. That's the wrong answer. Our hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. Those he predestined, he called. Those he called, he justified. Those he justified, he glorified. He has called a beautiful, radiant bride to himself through the rags and the ashes to be presented in radiance and splendor. Let's pray. Jesus, I thank you for your hope.